Welcome to the second part of our summary of the Second World War from its beginnings in September 1939 to the invasion of the USSR in June 1941. I'm Harry Stevens, and I'm your host. Last time, we went from the invasion of Poland to the fall of France. In this episode, we'll look at the Battle of Britain, the North and East African theaters, the invasions of Yugoslavia and Greece, and some of the atrocities committed during this period. With France knocked out of the war, Germany could turn her focus to Great Britain, currently standing by itself. Hitler and his crony believed that the UK was already on the edge of collapse, and in truth, Britain's strategic position was quite tenuous. At the moment, they were the only unoccupied nation fighting the Axis. The British Home Islands remained relatively secure, protected, as they had been for hundreds of years, by the English Channel and the powerful Royal Navy. The Kriegsmarine, Germany's navy, was simply no match. So any invasion of Britain, which would obviously be amphibious, could only be conducted if the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was able to take dominance of the skies to defend German ships. To that end, German air forces were given the lofty task of destroying the Royal Air Force, RAF, altogether. The most optimistic Nazis believed that a weakened Britain could be brought to the peace table by German bombing and just the threat of invasion. This campaign, notable for being conducted wholly by aerial forces, is known as the Battle of Britain and lasted from July 10th to October 31st of 1940. Regarding the overall strategic situation, both sides had advantages and disadvantages. Germany was able to commit more total aircraft to the Battle of Britain than the British, 2,550 versus 1,963 respectively. But many of these German aircraft were bombers, which were vulnerable to fighters due to their slow speed and large size. Despite Germany deploying a large number of aircraft, they were actually producing fewer than the British. Throughout the Battle of Britain, the UK was able to substantially outproduce Germany in aircraft, particularly in fighters. During the four months in question, British factories created about 2,000 fighters. The Germans, over the whole of 1940, made about 2,700 fighters. The Germans did have more trained pilots, meaning that many German pilots had no planes to fly, and many German planes didn't have qualified pilots to fly them. German planes also accrued some disadvantages from attacking. British coastal radar helped commanders to allocate and deploy aircraft in a timely manner. German planes shot down over British airspace meant the death or capture of the crew, while British pilots who were downed had a chance to bail out, living to fly another day. It's also worth noting that a significant portion of Allied pilots in the Battle of Britain were not actually British. About 600, 20% of total pilots for the RAF, were escapees from occupied European countries like Poland or Czechoslovakia. Many others were from Britain's colonial dominions. New Zealand alone provided about 130 pilots, which is more than impressive for a country of just 1.6 million people on the opposite end of the earth. Early directions to the Luftwaffe regarding the Battle of Britain had been vague, mostly made up of lofty statements about destroying the RAF and striking a crushing moral blow against the British. This lack of specificity was symptomatic of poor German planning and overconfidence. In reality, several goals were on the table for the Luftwaffe during the Battle of Britain. The first stage of the campaign, from July to August, consisted of German attacks on British shipping in the English Channel, part of an effort to gain aerial and naval superiority. British command was hesitant to commit large-scale forces so early, and British convoys were eventually turned away from the Channel or temporarily replaced by rail transport. Although this was a success for Luftwaffe, some dangerous signs were present. German losses, even under these relatively advantageous conditions, were higher than their opponents. 
British Air losses over the channel in this period were 115 fighters, while the Luftwaffe lost 80 fighters, 22 dive bombers, 100 medium bombers, and 13 naval aircraft, a total of 215 aircraft, or almost a 2 to 1 loss rate compared to the British. As the British conceded the channel in early August, many Nazis, including Luftwaffe head Hermann Gehring, were convinced that the RAF was on the edge of collapse. Seeking to destroy what remained the British air power in a single quick stroke, Gehring decided to press the attack. The first day of this offensive, which would take the fight from the Channel to the skies over the British Isles themselves, would begin August 13th and was called Adlertag, or Eagle Day. For Adlertag, German planes would assault British radio stations and airfields, forcing a British response. German planners hoped that these British defenders would suffer crippling losses, neutralizing the RAF. Early raids saw limited success, but German forces took heavy losses. August 18th marked the bloodiest day in the Battle of Britain, and it was appropriately called the hardest day. German losses, particularly in the air, were not only heavy, but disproportionate. However, the British were also coming under increasing pressure as trained pilots started to run thin. While on their face, the number of losses might not look so bad compared to infantry battles that claim thousands of deaths per day, we have to consider them in proportion. For instance, the hardest day claimed about 60 British and 70 German planes. On average, British factories were producing about 17 fighters a day, while Germany was creating around 7 to 8 fighters a day. As the days ticked on, German pilots and commanders grew nervous that although they were exhausting the British, they were exhausting themselves just as quickly. Moving into desperation, Gehring ordered German raids to shift their focus to the British aircraft industry, hoping to deny Britain their industrial advantage. What this also meant was that cities, and therefore civilians, began to come under attack. Most German officers embraced this, both as a means of revenge against similar Allied bombings and hoping to demoralize the British public. Most famously, London came under severe bombing. But British morale was only strengthened in the face of enemy attacks, and British solidarity under German bombing would become a symbol of the characteristic stoicness associated with the UK. Perhaps more importantly, continuing air battles sapped German strength more and more, worsening their chronic lack of aircraft. Britain, on the other hand, was able to not only keep up its aircraft production, but keep up its pilot numbers through a combination of foreign pilots and an expedited training program. This shortening of the training program may have been suboptimal, but it also provided an essential supply of pilots. In fact, the RAF's number of operational pilots actually grew month over month. As the Luftwaffe's losses began to become disastrous and began themselves to have pilot issues, the decision was made to halt operations over Britain and indefinitely postpone an invasion of the island. Total losses for the Battle of Britain were, like most air battles tend to be, relatively small in total numbers compared to land battles. The RAF and its allies lost about 1,700 aircraft and 1,500 personnel. Additionally, about 14,000 civilians were killed by German bombers. On the German side, the Luftwaffe lost about 2,000 aircraft and had about 3,500 pilots and crew killed or captured. The Battle of Britain had tremendous implications, both materially and for purposes of morale. The Luftwaffe, which was potentially the most effective, if not the most powerful, air force in the world as a combination of tactics, pilots, and equipment, had suffered a serious blow, denying it both expensive aircraft and skilled pilots, the latter of which being far more valuable than the former. 
It also marked the first time the German military had suffered a major loss at this point in the war. As a symbolic gesture, it strengthened British morale and put a damper in German confidence. Many Americans were also encouraged by the stalwart British commitment to continue the war even under fire, and this likely played a significant role in the American decision to provide equipment to the UK via lend-lease. Nor did the Battle of Britain mark the end of a foolhardy Nazi attempt to cripple the UK from the air. In fact, after the official end of the Battle of Britain, German bombers continued to mount attacks on British cities and industrial centers, abandoning targeted attempts to destroy the RAF. The Blitz, as it was called, ran from September of 1940 to May of 1941, at which point Luftwaffe forces were shifted to prepare for the invasion of the USSR. German losses during the Blitz were severe, about 2,300 aircraft and 3,400 aircrew, although some of these overlapped with losses during the Battle of Britain. Damage to industry proved not worth the cost, and the Blitz ended up stiffening British morale and commitment to the war effort, all while continuing to bleed the Luftwaffe of sorely needed equipment and personnel. Now we're going to look at the North African and East African campaigns, the Axis invasion of Greece and Yugoslavia, anything miscellaneous that I feel doesn't fit, and then cover the war crimes for the period in this war. Turning to campaigns in Africa, combat began on June 10, 1940, as Italy declared war on Britain and France. Italy was seeking to expand its empire in Africa, and Italian Libya bordered British Egypt to the east and French North Africa to the west. Further south, British East Africa shared a border with Italy's Abyssinian colony. At first glance, these areas might seem a bit insignificant. They lacked industry, a large population, or too much in the way of resources. And yet, they had serious strategic implications. In North Africa, control of Egypt meant control of the Suez Canal, a vital pathway that cut thousands of miles off trips from Europe to Asia. Losing it would put British trade and control of its Asian colonies, especially India, at severe risk. Control of North Africa would also grant increased access to the Mediterranean. In the minds of some of the more imaginative planners, an Axis conquest of North Africa would be followed up by complete Italo-German domination of the Middle East, from which they would advance into India itself. East Africa also had its own value. Control of the East African coast offered the Axis the opportunity to harry and interrupt traffic through the Suez Canal. Additionally, colonies were a matter of prestige, and losing them would be horrible PR in a time when PR might make or break the war. At the time the fighting started in Africa, Italian forces were the ones doing the fighting. Germany had relatively little interest in the region at the time and were already tied up in Europe. The Italian military was not in what could be called fighting shape. Compared to the other great powers, Italy was poor and not particularly industrial. Its forces tended to be poorly led and poorly equipped, and many Italian soldiers didn't particularly understand why they were fighting. As such, the Italian military in World War II has gotten quite a bad, although not unearned, reputation. All the same, Italy saw some limited successes at the outset of the African campaigns. In North Africa, Italy had many more forces in the area, as British and French troops were spread thin or in collapse, respectively. An Italian invasion of Egypt in September 1940 was able to push vastly outnumbered British forces back about 105 kilometers, 65 miles, but preparations for a further push into Egypt were preempted by Operation Compass, a British counterattack launched on December 9th. Executed against unsuspecting and poorly led Italian troops, 36,000 British troops were able to quickly penetrate Italian forces, numbering some 150,000. 
Within two months, the British Western Desert Force was able to push Italian troops out of Egypt, capture much of Italian Libya, take over 130,000 Italian prisoners, all for under 2,000 casualties. Seeing the precarious position the Italians found themselves in, Hitler grudgingly allowed a force of German troops to be sent to North Africa to stabilize the situation. The Deutsches Afrika Corps, as it was called, or DAK, was made up of the small 5th Light Division and units from the 15th Panzer Division, and was led by Erwin Rommel, one of Hitler's favorite officers. Arriving piecemeal in the spring of 1940, Rommel arrived with instructions to hold the line, but found British forces weakened and decided to attack. Seizing the opportunity, Rommel's Africa Corps launched an attack on British forces, who ended up having to beat a hasty retreat. The German advance retook occupied Libya, while a British force was trapped in Tobruk, one of Libya's ports. Smaller-scale operations continued on and off for the next month, but the initiative remained in German hands. In East Africa, British troops were even more far and few between, especially given the size of the area. An Italian attack on British Somaliland forced the British and colonial defenders, outnumbered 5-1, to one, to evacuate, leaving Somaliland to the Italians. Italian forces were also able to make a wider advance along the northern and central Italian-British border. The scale of the war was limited by things like poor roads, lack of water, and the size of the region. By late 1940, the Italians had largely settled into defensive positions, hoping to consolidate their gains. In 1941, British forces launched several campaigns against the Italians. In the north, British attacks into the flanks of the Italian lines were able to break in and capture all of Eritrea, pushing into northern Ethiopia. In the center, small groups of British forces and larger groups of Ethiopian irregular fighters broke enemy defenses and forced the surrender of several Italian commanders and their men in the area. In the south, Allied forces cut through unprepared Italians, moving to take several major cities almost unopposed. These campaigns had largely wrapped up by May of 1941, and the Italian position was now untenable. Some Italian troops and those Ethiopians loyal to them continued to hold out, but major resistance was mopped up by November of 1941. The war in East Africa was characterized by poor conditions and a much smaller and much more primitive scale of warfare than that which occurred in Europe. Heavy equipment was difficult to transfer and supplies were hard to come by. Despite the conflict being between the UK and Italy in name, most of the troops that fought in East Africa were neither English nor Italian. On the British side, many came from South Africa, while others came from brands colonies in Western or Eastern Africa. In particular, Nigerian units distinguished themselves. On the Italian side, about two-thirds of forces in Eastern Africa were colonial troops. This particular combination of factors led to some truly stunning exploits on behalf of the British troops. They consistently fought against far greater numbers and won decisive battles. It was also not uncommon to see ridiculous advances. In western Ethiopia, Allied forces managed to advance 2,700 kilometers, or 1,700 miles, in just two months. To the south, the 23rd Motorized Nigerian Brigade advanced 380 kilometers, or 235 miles, in just three days. The East African campaign is often neglected, so I encourage you to read up on it, but for now, we've got to move ahead to Greece. In Greece, the Italians found themselves in another military mishap. Greece held important positions in the eastern Mediterranean, and the Greek government had sought protection from the British against Italy's ambitions. Greece already an underdog, was further jeopardized when the Italian invasion and annexation of Albania in April of 1939 put Italian forces on the Greek border. 
Although Mussolini was confident in the Italian army's ability to sweep the floor with the Greeks, invasion plans had to be delayed several times due to poor timing and the North African campaign. By October, though, the time seemed right for what promised to be Italy's most glorious triumph so far. Mussolini intended to occupy the whole of Greece and install a puppet state. Over the objections of his generals, who claimed that a full occupation of Greece would require triple the number of men currently allotted to the invasion, Mussolini would insist that the plan go ahead. The Italian plan against Greece had quite a few problems going in. Despite the vast power divide between Italy and Greece on paper, Italian invasion plans only granted them a minor numerical advantage over the Greeks, about 150,000 troops versus 120,000 troops, respectively. Italian troops would also not have the element of surprise, as Greek forces had begun mobilizing days before the invasion. Mussolini had hoped that Bulgaria, with a pro-Axis government, would join his war against Greece, but Tsar Boris III, ruler of Bulgaria, refused, citing unpreparedness and external threats. The territory the Italians would be attacking over was mountainous, making combat difficult and favoring the defender. Finally, the Italian army was having severe issues in manpower and logistics. Mussolini had allowed about 900,000 Italian soldiers and reservists to return home so they could help with the harvest, depriving the army of significant forces. Supplies were often late or lost. At just a glance, the Italian invasion of Greece was supposed to have 1,750 trucks. In reality, they received just 100. However, come hell or high water, Mussolini would insist on invading. On October 28, 1940, Greek dictator Ioannis Metaxas received an ultimatum from Italy. It demanded that Italian troops be allowed to occupy important positions throughout Greece. Of course, Metaxas refused this, as Mussolini hoped he would. This refusal, and the day it occurred on, would become simply known as Ohi Day, Ohi being Greek for no. The first two weeks of Italian offensives saw some limited gains, but it exposed Italian troops to fierce fighting in harsh conditions against spirited Greek defenders who were fighting on their home territory. A Greek counteroffensive beginning in May of November recaptured all Italian gains and pushed deeply into Albania, endangering the Italian position. Petering out in January 1941, it was followed up by an Italian offensive in March of 1941, but that quickly ended in failure. While the Greek army had put up a tremendous showing, humiliating a major power, months of combat had begun to test the limits of Greek strength. Particularly, Greek's logistics situation was turning dire, and weapons production was insufficient for the demands of the military. It was also becoming more and more readily apparent that Germany would step in to help Italy soon. The only thing countering this looming threat was a relatively small British expeditionary force that was sent to help Greece in March and April, numbering about 62,000 Brits, Anzacs, Cypriots, and more. Before we get into Germany and Greece and how the Greek campaign ended, we have to look at Germany and Yugoslavia. For several months, Germany watched Italy's flailing efforts against Greece. Hitler had thought highly of Mussolini decades ago as the first fascist leader, but his opinion had substantially diminished since. Despite that, Hitler eventually realized he needed to bail out his bumbling Italian ally. Had Italy not attacked, Greece likely would have remained neutral, as it had strong ties to Germany through trade and no desire to be caught up in a war. But now that Greece had joined the war on the Allied side, they needed to be dealt with. First and foremost, Hitler was concerned with British bombers in Greece attacking oil fields in Romania, one of Germany's largest sources of fuel. So, a German attack was needed, but it couldn't come from Albania. Italian troops were already overcrowded there, and the supply system simply could not handle more men or equipment. 
So German troops would have to enter from Bulgaria or from Yugoslavia. While Bulgaria had turned down Italian requests to attack Greece, Germany was able to bully Bulgaria into joining the Axis and allowing German troops to attack Greece through Bulgaria. Germany was able to pressure Yugoslavia into doing the same on March 25, 1941. However, two days later, a collection of anti-German officers, angry at the decision, launched a coup that disposed King Paul of Yugoslavia. Angered at this, and worried about the Allies using Yugoslavia as a base of operations, Hitler ordered the invasion of Yugoslavia. The result of the invasion, which began on April 6, was a foregone conclusion. Perhaps on paper, the Yugoslavian military might have been able to put up a fight, but in reality, it was more of a two-week tour of the Balkans than a war. Most of the Yugoslavian troops were either unprepared for war, actively against the Yugoslav government, or merely apathetic. Yugoslavia had been thrown together after World War I. In theory, it should have represented the unity of Balkan Slavs under a single monarch. In practice, age-old tribal, ethnic, and religious divisions con continued apace. The state was controlled by Serbians, a fact presented by the numerous ethnic minorities. So, unlike in Poland or Greece, there wasn't a great deal of strong nationalism or patriotism that would compel soldiers to fight for their country. Attacks simultaneously from Germany, Italy, Romania, Hungary, and Bulgaria, Yugoslavia folded in their two weeks. The state was split up and distributed among the Axis powers, and a Croatian puppet state was established with the remainder. Wasting no time, German forces sprinted to the Yugoslav-Greek border to join the attack. From here, Greece lasted only a few weeks. Overstretched, outnumbered, and running out of supplies, exhausted Greek forces tried their best, but began to collapse. Under immense pressure, Greece signed an armistice on April 23, 1941, although resistance from individual Greek units and evacuating British troops continued. The next month, a German paratrooper assault on Crete managed to take the island with heavy casualties. Honestly, the Battle of Crete deserves much more than one sentence, but the script is already 24 pages long at this point, so we need to start wrapping up. Even on the first day of the war, war crimes had already begun in force. On September 1st, 1939, it's estimated that just on that single day, over a thousand Polish prisoners of war were shot. By New Year's Day of 1940, it's estimated that German forces had murdered at least 45,000 Poles. Jews were already beginning to be targeted, but killings were not the mass industrialized sort that would come to typify the Holocaust. At this point, Jews were being exposed to the same anti-Semitic laws that had already been in place in Germany for years. So stealing of property, the forcing into ghettos, and being required to wear a Star of David. During the initial period of occupation, ethnic Poles remained the main target, as the Nazis attempted to break down Polish control and resistance to Nazi occupation. In the Soviet zone of occupation, they committed similar atrocities. Over a million Poles in the Soviet zone of occupation were deported to reduce Polish control and power in eastern Poland, and to make room for Soviet colonization. Soviet execution of prisoners of war in the occupied territory was very common. Most infamously, the USSR executed 22,000 prominent Poles in the Katya massacres. These Poles had been imprisoned during or shortly after the Soviet conquest of eastern Poland to preempt a resistance movement, and taken to various prisons throughout the USSR. Although described in a singular sense, the Katyn massacre was in fact several mass executions, taking place at different times and in different places. Katyn was a forest outside the city of Smolensk in the USSR, while the two other centers of execution were prisons in Kalinin and Kharkov. 
In these prisons, men were brought one at a time to a small room, made to kneel, and then quickly shot in the head. One man in particular, Vasily Blokin, was said to have killed at least 7,000 alone. Such brutality and apathy is typical of how both the Soviets and Germans treat innocent Poles. France, the Low Countries, Yugoslavia, Greece, Denmark, Norway, and North Africa all saw similar treatment. Some countries received better treatment due to perceptions that their population was more Germanic, but mistreatment, abuse, and atrocity was consistent. Attacks on German occupation forces by resistance members saw German reprisals that killed hundreds of innocent civilians. Jews, Roma, the disabled, and political dissidents in these countries were subject to discrimination, deportation, and eventual massacre. Even those peoples not seen as inferior by the Germans were stolen from and abused with impunity, and their nations were pillaged to fuel the Nazi war machine. We're going to cover war crimes, in particular the Holocaust, in more detail as it ramps up, but this is roughly where we'll leave it for now. As summer of 1941 approached, Nazi Germany had conquered nearly all of continental Europe in a series of stunning victories. Poland was broken into pieces in a month. France, where the German army had withered away in the First World War, was brought down in six weeks. The Netherlands, Luxembourg, Denmark, Norway, Greece, and Yugoslavia had all been crushed by Germany, and now German forces were menacing North Africa. With everything in place, Hitler could now turn his attention firmly to the USSR, what he saw as Germany's destiny and greatest conquest. Hitler was sure that the USSR, supposedly led by Jews and populated with inferior Slavs, would be a quick and easy victory. The USSR, with its massive army, industry, and landmass, was committed to standing tall as the bastion of communism. Whoever was stronger, a war between these two giants marked destruction on a scale hereto unknown. That brings us to the end of our episode today. I apologize that I had to glance over so much, but there's so much material to cover, and we are just about ready to begin our main episodes. Next week will be the first of these, but I want to let you guys know that I'm planning to pepper in kind of bonus episodes. I already have a few read, one on Soviet and German armor technology and forces as it pertains to Operation Barbarossa, and I'm planning to make a long one on the overall strategic outline that brings a lot of the stuff we've already talked about together, one on the uh, situation regarding air forces, and maybe one or two others. These might end up repeating some of the information you hear in the main episodes because of overlap, but they'll still have a lot of good stuff that you won't hear in the main ones. I'll try and, like I said, pepper these in alongside main releases. If you've got any suggestions for possible topics or any suggestions, comments, or complaints in general, email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Until then, I'm Harry Stevens, and I'll see you next week.